in our Bibles to Romans chapter 5, Sunday morning studying the book of Romans uh, together. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and you flag them, they'll put a Bible in your hand, it'll be marked to our passage we're studying this morning for your convenience. And if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from your Creator to you today. We pick things up in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. And Paul writes, by the Spirit of God, for when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, we were enemy, if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Let's pray together. Father, we are always uh, humbled and never cease to have it come uh, to our mind every time we open up your Bible, your book, Lord, at the incredible privilege that is ours to be able to do that, to be fashioned by your tr truth, to be fashioned by your voice and your wisdom, to experience the witness of your Holy Spirit to your truth within our lives, to know that this is truth that will never disappoint us as we obey it and as we heed you. We thank you for your word and the great revelation it is of your heart, of your character, who it is that we have made our Lord and our God, and we pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to us through your word in that regard this morning as well. We pray for the uh, youth camp, the high school winter camp that's going on, and we ask that you would put the finishing touches of your Holy Spirit upon each one of their lives. We thank you for your call upon their lives, their love for you, that they've taken this time to draw nigh to you. We know that you have drawn nigh to them as a result, as your word promises. And we pray, Lord, as we're just so zealous and jealous and eager for your plan to unfold in each one of their lives, that you would continue to do that. We pray that the weekend has been a great one for them, and now what they need to hear from you in conclusion to the weekend, we pray that you would give them ears to hear exactly that. Bring them home safely to us. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This passage in the book of Romans is one of the most uh, beloved passages uh, in the entire Bible and certainly one of the most beloved passages in the entire uh, book because it, it is, it, but it's also one of the most important passages in the book of Romans because it reveals to us uh, the motivation of God in saving us. People do a lot of different things for a lot of different reasons. And a lot of motivations are not very, very healthy. And a lot of motivations for why people do different things that they do uh, end up 
producing something where there's really no security. It's not a foundation that you uh, can build upon. So it's important for us to know why has God saved us? Why has He made this sacrifice for us? Why has He brought us into this relationship? Why does He give us the promises that He gives uh, to us? And here we're told that His motivation in saving us as sinners is His love for us. Paul broached the subject of God's love for the first time in the book of Romans in uh, verse 5 of chapter 5, essentially declaring that it is God's love poured out in our hearts uh, during the periods of tribulation uh, in our lives when our character is being uh, built. And uh, during the seasons of of tribulation, the, uh, the explanation for the perseverance, our perseverance through those difficulties and trials uh, in life uh, is because of the love of God that's been poured out into our lives during those seasons by the Holy Spirit. And now having kind of broached the subject there in verse 5 uh, of love, Paul now jumps into the subject with both feet in, in verse 6. And here we learn, as I've said, in earnest, God's motivation for saving us and His motivation being uh, love. We've read all about uh, the, the darkness of our spiritual condition uh, before becoming Christians in verses one, uh, chapters 1 through 3, and then the latter portion of uh, chapter 3, and then in chapter 4, uh, the provision of God for our salvation. But here in chapter 5, Paul introduces, again, God's motivation for saving us. Yes, there is something in the universe that is greater than all of our sin and the judgment that it deserves, and that something that is greater than our sin and the judgment that it deserves is the love of God. You notice in uh, verse 8 that the love of God for us is stated with unmistakable clarity. I'll read it once again to you. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All the way through uh, uh, God's Word, God's love for us is communicated, and uh, none other than by God Himself. All the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, uh, there's so many verses we could spend the morning reading them to you, but I'll pick out a few of my favorites. But God's speaking of His love for His people, His children under the old covenant, the children of Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 6. I'll read it for you. God said to them, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special tribute above all the peoples of the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than other people, for you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you. And so God loved the children of Israel, even under the old covenant, he loved the children of Israel, not because they were lovable, they certainly weren't uh, any more than we are, but he loved them because God is so loving. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 3, the Lord has appeared of old to me saying, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love and therefore with loving kindness I have drawn you. Uh, the Apostle John writes in the New Testament, 
He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. It is not the only thing God is, uh, but it is at the core of His character that He is love. Again, 1 John 4, 19, uh, in 1 John's uh, epistle, we love Him because He first loved us. And then famously, Jesus in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. I think it's important to notice uh, in verse 8 that the love of God for us is a demonstrated uh, love. And you notice that word demonstrates in the passage, and it's important to notice it because what it communicates is significant. There's an awful lot of people in the world that know how to love in word. They know how to wax eloquent in expressing their love or expressing their uh, feelings. They say the words, but, and I think we've all known them, but they never ever back it up with any actions. There are never any tangible expressions uh, of their love. The apostle uh, John, again, he addressed this tendency even among Christians. Uh, with the admonition, 1 John chapter 3, verse 18, Dear children, let us not merely say that we love one another, uh, let us show the truth by our actions. And this, uh, this type of love that goes on in the world in which we live, where a person is considered loving by virtue of the fact that they can communicate it and do communicate it so much, but they never show it in their life, uh, that characteristic or that kind of love is not characteristic of God at all. He not only declares His love to us, but then He demonstrates that love to us. Before we get any further into the demonstration, though, of God's love, into what the love, uh, what the love of God is, I think it's best to start where the apostle does start in our passage here with basically what God's love is is not, and he describes it there in uh, verse uh, 7 and verse 8. Notice that Paul begins verse 8 talking about the love of God. He begins verse 8 with the word but, and what he's communicating there, because he's doing a hard 90 out of uh, verse uh, 7 and using that word but, uh, in other words, uh, God, uh, Paul is declaring that the love of God, as it's described in verse 8, is be being put in contrast to the love of man as it's described in verse 7. And what Paul is uh, declaring in that word, but, is that the love of God is not a bigger and better version of man's love for his fellow man. Even when that love is expressed at, it, at its highest and at its uh, noblest, but that the love of God is something altogether different, altogether superior to any love we have ever experienced with another human being or any love that we have extended uh, to them. Concerning the love of man for his fellow man, Paul declares in verse 7, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. 
and he's talking when he refers to a righteous man. This is a godly man. This is a righteous man. This is a man who does what is right in, in the Word of God. He is obedient uh, to God, and he lives a godly life. He lives life as it should be lived. And by virtue of being a righteous man, he lives his life in terms of virtue, in terms of the quality of human being that he is. He lives far above the overwhelming majority of people who live uh, in the world. And yet Paul says, and it's an observation any of us can make in life as well, uh, Paul declares that despite the uh, virtuous life that he lives, scarcely a single person would be willing to lay down their life, to sacrifice uh, their own life, to throw themselves over the live grenade within the foxhole, or to give up their seat upon uh, the lifeboat out in the middle of, of the ocean in order to save even that quality of a human being. And the reason that we don't is that our self-love is so strong and it's so dominant that even in the best of our relationships with one another, uh, our love is, is always dominated by, our love for other people is always dominated by our su supreme love for ourselves. And so uh, the, our love for others is weak in comparison to our love for ourselves. Our instinct for self-preservation is too strong. Paul gives a second illustration in verse 7, and he says, yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. This is someone who's not only a righteous person, but someone who is warm, someone who is caring, uh, someone who is uh, loving and generous and kind. I mean, the people that we love to be around most in life, the people that we like most in life. And yet Paul says, even for this person, you might find one or two people who'd be willing to uh, die in order to preserve such a life, but really no significant line would form in order to do so, in order to preserve the life of even the very best kind of human being. In other words, and this is very important to understand, the love that you and I have experienced in the nitty-gritty of our life on planet Earth with other people is not how we should ever understand God's love for us or how we should ever define God's love for us. We must never bring the baggage of what we have experienced in terms of a love relationship with other human beings. All of the ups, the downs, the conditionalness of it, the heartbreak of it, we are never when we think of the love of God or we speak of the love of God to ever bring anything from our own realm, uh, from our own experience in life now and say, well, the love of God is just a bigger and better version of that. It is nothing of the kind. The love of God, Paul is saying here, uh, stands in absolute contrast to the very best love that we will ever experience on a, on a human level uh, with one another. And, and um, 
and we're never to bring that, that love and those ideas of love into our relationship with him. Man's love is almost always very conditional. It is uh, very, very selfish in motivation, self-preserving, self-interested, and very self-dominated. Uh, it reminds me of a couple stories I read about uh, many, many years ago now uh, about how even the loftiest love of man uh, for his fellow man and even the dearest relationships in life uh, are still tainted uh, by the flesh. Uh, there was a grieving widow, and she discussed <clears throat> with her friend She discussed her, her late husband with her friend, and she said, my Albert was such a good man, and I miss him so. And he provided for me with that $5 million life insurance policy, but I'd give a 1,000 of it just to have him back. It's kind of like that a little bit. A woman went into the, now this is my Henny Youngman routine here. Uh, a, man, a woman went into the police station to report her husband missing, and she described him as 29 years old, six feet tall, fit and handsome. And the desk sergeant said, I know your husband. He's 48, short and overweight. And she said, sure he is, but who wants him back? <laughs> I think it's helpful to be reminded that in, and, and it's been a long time since I think I've brought it up, and uh, so some of, uh, some of us here today unaware of it altogether. But it's good to be reminded that in the original language of the New Testament, the Greek, uh, that there are several words for love, uh, while in the English language there's only one word for love. It is the word love. And thus, we have to use the same word in the English language, love, uh, for what we feel toward our husband or our wife or toward a son or a daughter or what we feel uh, related to the Golden State Warriors or what we feel uh, concerning a tray of hot chocolate chip cookies coming uh, right out of the oven. And hopefully, a person loves their spouse on a completely different level than the way they love chocolate chip cookies, but we're forced to use the same word to describe uh, the emotion of love. The Greek language doesn't suffer those kind of limitations at all. The Greek language has several uh, words for love. Uh, storge is one of those words, and it is used in the New Testament. It describes the love that holds the family unit together. It is the love of a parent for a child and a child uh, for a parent. It's the love, uh, the natural affection that, that holds the family together. Then there's the Greek word eros. We get our English word erotic from it, and it describes love on a physical plane. And Eros love is a very, very uh, conditional love. It is a very, very self-centered love. In fact, it's so conditional and it's so self-focused, Eros is, though still a love, it, is, it has been described as the if love. I love you if you remain a certain thing physically. 
I, re- I love you if you look a certain way physically. But if your looks change, uh, then Eros love will abandon you and it will run for the hills. Uh, Eros love will not endure uh, wrinkles. It won't endure weight gain. It won't endure uh, declining health. It won't endure any uh, physical change in another person that affects their attractiveness. And as a result, Eros love is a very, very shaky foundation. Uh, 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 that's, uh, uh, that love is a very sh- shaky foundation for ever building any kind of a lasting relationship uh, upon it because things change physically over time. Then there's the Greek word phileo that is used in the New Testament. And uh, it's the foundation of the word that uh, makes up uh, the the, uh, famous city that is in the United States, Philadelphia. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. That's what Philadelphia means. And phileo refers to a brotherly love. And it is love on the emotional plane. It is love on the intellectual plane. It is when we fall in love with a person because of their personality, because of who and what they are on the inside. That is phileo love. And it is a love, but it's a very conditional uh, love. And uh, it's not as shallow or as conditional as Eros love, but it's still very conditional and it's very self-centered. And because it is, it is often known as the because love. Eros is, I love you if. Uh, uh, Phileo says, I love you uh, because, because of what you are intellectually, because of what you are uh, emotionally. But if you change intellectually, if you change emotionally, If your personality changes, uh, then this love, this phileo love, fades as well. But the interesting thing to realize about uh, uh, these Greek words that are used that give a a more uh, definite uh, description of love, that none of those words that so mark our love as human beings one to another, none of those words are used to describe God's love in verse 8. The Greek word that is used for God's love there is the word agape, and it is the word that it comes from God alone. It has its origin in God alone. In uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, it's described as the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It has its origin in God and in God alone. We partake of it. It flows out of our lives as Christians only because the Holy Spirit has brought it into our lives. The fruit of the, whole, uh, of the Holy Spirit, Paul wrote in Galatians, uh, is love. And it speaks of this agape love. This agape love is often called the anyway love. In other words, I love you no matter what. I love you no matter what you are or what you aren't, uh, physically uh, or intellectually or emotionally. Uh, this love will love anyway. It loves through all the ups and downs in life, all of the changes in life, all of the trials in life. It loves through everything. And this agape love that God describes as the love that he has uh, for us is not conditional. As Shakespeare put it, it does not alter when it alteration finds. This love is supremely concerned, not with itself, 
but with the object of its love, and it will always do what is best and right to meet the needs for the person, the object uh, of its uh, love. And this is how God loves us. And this is why Paul begins uh, verse 8 with the word, but… And he uses that word in order to put God's love, as it's described there in verse 8, in stark contrast with man's love, even man's love at its best, as it's described in verse 7. In other words, Paul is saying God's love is something completely different. And as if we didn't get it with the but, you notice he goes on in verse 8 there, but God demonstrates, notice those next three words, his own love. He is contrasting the love with which he loves us from any kind of love that we will ever know on a, on a human level with another person or in this world. And, and, and he wants us to know that. God's love is different from and infinitely superior to any love we have ever known in this world or in any other relationship. In other words, again, don't bring that baggage of that experience or even the baggage of the limitations and failure of your own love toward other people and now superimpose it upon God and say, God's love for me is just kind of a slightly improved, stronger version of that. It, ha- it, it, has, it has no um, roots in anything we've experienced in life at all. It is something that is distinctive and, and uniquely its own. Now, notice supremely in verse 8 here that God's love is a demonstrated love. And the Greek word that Paul uses for demonstrates there in verse 8, it carries with it the idea of, in the original language, it means to present, it means to show, it means to demonstrate in its best light. And I, that's the definition I've used ever since I was a new Christian. That word demonstrates means to show in its best light. That is what that word uh, means. In other words, uh, is it kind of an example from life? When you walk into a jewelry showroom uh, and you ask to see diamonds, this is uh, theoretical for many of us, uh, it is for me, but, uh, but picture it within your mind. Maybe you've seen it in a movie. But uh, you walk into a jewelry showroom and you ask to see their diamonds. Uh, when the salesperson brings the diamonds out, they don't dump them on the top of the glass display counter that uh, you know, lies between uh, you and them uh, for you to now view it in that way. Everybody knows that's not the best way, uh, that's not the way to view diamonds in their best light. 
So typically what they'll do is they'll pull out some kind of a a very rich, maybe a velour uh, kind of black cloth or a, a deep, deep purple cloth. They will lay that down on the counter, and then they will put the diamonds now upon the richness and the darkness of that background, and then with the lights showing upon the diamonds against the dark background, now we're able to see those diamonds in their best light. And that's what Paul is talking about uh, uh, here. And, uh, and so too, he says, related uh, concerning the love of God. It is supremely, the love of God, supremely demonstrated in putting this, the priceless magnificence of the death of Jesus on the cross, Paul says, for our sins and putting it against the dark background of our sin. And so in our minds as we sit here today, picture Jesus in your mind on that cross, covered with blood from head to toe, covered with his own blood. From head to toe, he is one great open wound as he hangs uh, upon uh, the cross. And, and then, but don't stop there. As you picture him there, look at what Paul says in, in terms of, of who it was that was upon that cross. He says Christ died. Not just uh, Joe McGillicuddy died for our sins. It is Christ that died and hung upon that cross for our sins. And this is uh, Jesus himself that died upon, uh, upon that cross. The, the uh, King of kings and the Lord of lords, as the Father said concerning the Son, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. As Jesus declared in Revelation concerning himself, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the one uh, who was and is and who is to come, the Almighty. Uh, as he's described elsewhere in the New Testament, who was in the beginning with the Father from eternity past. That's who hung upon that cross for us uh, 2,000 years ago. But even to look at him and to see him hanging upon that cross, struggling for every breath as he attempts to breathe and knowing all of this about him uh, and who it is that it's upon the cross, you still can't fully appreciate uh, the demonstration of God's love uh, uh, for us in the cross. Uh, for that to happen, you have to picture him now dead on that cross. And his head is bowed now. His body is limp, being held only to the cross by the nails. The eyes are closed. Uh, the voice has been silenced. The hands are limp. And so you look at him now dead upon that cross. And yet even looking at him dead upon that cross, even there... We, can't, we aren't even beginning to scratch the surface for understanding the greatness of God's love for us. We cannot fully appreciate it by simply looking at it. Uh, that doesn't happen, uh, that full appreciation, until you put the indescribable costliness of that sacrifice, of that Son of God, up against the darkness of the background of our sin, 
which is exactly what Paul does within this passage. And Paul describes the dark backdrop to the death of Christ, our sin. You notice in verse 6, he says, he saved us when we were still without strength. While we were absolutely unable to save ourselves, in verse 6, he saved us when we were ungodly. That is, while we were living in complete rebellion to God and to his kingdom. Sometimes we'll speak of, of a, uh, someone as being un-American. And when we refer to someone as being un-American, we're not speaking supremely of the fact that they weren't uh, born in the United States. But when we describe someone as un-American, we're describing someone who opposes our values, who opposes what the nation stands for. When we speak of someone who is un-American, we're speaking of someone who is anti-American. And when God uses the term ungodly for us, he is describing the fact that in our former condition, that we were uh, at war, we were anti-God, we were at war with God, with his values, and with what he stands for, and yet still he loved us. He goes on further and says that he, this demonstration of his love, that he, Jesus, saved us in due time, verse 6. And Paul speaks of this more fully in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, where he wrote, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, uh, born under the law. When the fullness of time had come, Jesus was born into the world. And, and what all of this means is that this plan of salvation, uh, this that is found in Jesus Christ. This plan was not a knee-jerk reaction of God following the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. That fall never took the Father or the Son by surprise. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, they didn't begin to wring their hands and wonder, now what are we going to do? What plan are we going to come up with now to undo this mess that we never thought uh, that they would uh, create for themselves and also uh, create uh, for us? But to know that God, uh, knowing that we would end up in the predicament that we were in and are in long before it happened, long before the fall ever happened in the Garden of Eden, long before the heavens and the earth were tainted by our sin, that despite uh, all of that, uh, the, and knowing that all of it was coming, and it, it's a marvel knowing all that we were going to do and all that we were going to be and all that was going to happen, God created us anyway. And he created us knowing the enormous sacrifice that would be required of both the Father and the Son to undo the mess that we would create in the Garden of Eden and that we would make of the world and the universe even after that. And God knowing what we would do and what we would become 
and knowing the sacrifice, the only sacrifice that would be required uh, that could uh, undo all of that, loving us so much, created us anyway, knowing what uh, he would have to give in order to save us out of that sinful condition. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, the apostle John describes Jesus as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. God knew before he ever created us the pickle we would be in, and the decision was made that, yes, we will, uh, an enormous sacrifice to ourselves, uh, save them out, bail them out of uh, the disaster of their sinful condition. At the separation of the sheep and the goats before the kingdom age, Uh, Jesus himself tells us in Matthew chapter 25 that he will say, Come, you blessed of my Father, speaking of the sheep on his right hand, uh, uh, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. God's love was so great for us, not after we sinned, Uh, Not when he created us, but even before he created us, knowing that this would be the sacrifice that he would make in order to save us. In terms of the the darkness of the backdrop of the glory of Calvary, uh, we're told in verse 7 that he saved us when we were neither righteous nor good. Uh, Verse 8, that he saved us when we were still sinners. In verse 10, that he saved us when we were still uh, enemies with him. We were at war with him. When I was talking about how few people will give their lives for the good or for the righteous in life, uh, some of you maybe with a, a military background might have thought immediately in your mind of the sacrifice that the mil- military men and women uh, make continually in giving their lives for their fellow soldiers and, and for their uh, country. But against this backdrop, even that commendable sacrifice pales in comparison to what Jesus has done. We give medals in the military for men and women who give their lives for their fellow soldiers and for their country, but we do not give them medals for giving their life for the enemy. And Jesus died for us while we were still enemies. That is an entirely different quality of love and an entirely different quality of sacrifice. And the Holy Spirit's argument through the Apostle Paul all the way through here to make us understand is that there was nothing whatsoever within us deserving of this sacrifice. There is nothing, not one little tiny thing within you or me, any of us, that is at all deserving of God's love. That Jesus did not die because he saw some good in us, He did not die because he saw uh, some divine spark within us, some divine potential uh, within us. He did not come into the world to make good people better, but to make dead people alive. Paul brings that out in verse 10. And as I declare these kind of things, someone might protest in the privacy of their heart, well, what in the world does this do to my self-esteem? I don't care what it does. 
for a person's self-esteem, because certainly a point could be made that the spiritually powerless and the ungodly and that sinners and that enemies of God should not have a high self-esteem. But everything that God tells us about ourselves here uh, uh, in, in, turn, in terms of the darkness of who we are and what we are apart from God, it tells us and communicates something wonderful about the security of God's love for us. If God loved us because we were lovable, if He loved us as conditionally as the world loves us and as people love us, then we could never be secure in that love because he, he is loving me then in response to something that I am, rather than it, it, to the fact that he loves me because he is love. The other thing about God's love in this relationship and an understanding of how great it is, not by exalting ourselves, but knowing, uh, being honest about ourselves and then seeing God's light and the light of that, it tells us that in our relationship with God, we never need to wonder if God will stop loving us if he finds out what we're really like uh, or what we were really like, uh, let alone what we are really like as well. Uh, we're all familiar with this on some level in our life. Sometimes we can get people to love us by fooling them. This happens all the time by only letting them see a certain side of me before we begin to get serious or even before we get uh, married. And so we can, sometimes we get people to love us by fooling them as to who and what we really are. We only let them see a certain side of ourselves. We hide, you know, the other, other parts. And the problem with doing that is there is no security in that kind of a relationship. You know the relationship won't last because we know sooner or later the other person is going to find out the whole truth and then break things off. But here in this relationship with God, we begin our relationship with God with the knowledge that He already knows everything about us. He knows everything about what we've been. He knows all of our weaknesses, all of our flaws. He has laid all of them out before us in the passage. But he, but he wants a relationship with us nonetheless. And what God does here and what he communicates here and the way that he communicates it through Paul is here he is describing a love that is secure, a love that you can base a lasting and a healthy relationship upon. This is someone who says, I know everything about you. I know you better than yourself, and yet I still love you and want a relationship with you. And once you begin a relationship with a person like that, you never have to worry that they're going to get cold feet somewhere along the line and then abandon the relationship. This is a secure love that God has saved us into. And so sometimes the Christian can wonder, and I think all of us, the best of us, 
can wonder at any time, you know, uh, how do I know that God loves me? But certainly when we find ourselves in the circumstances that Paul is describing there, uh, as we saw last week in verses 1 through 5, where you're talking about tribulations and tribulation, uh, you, you know, working perseverance and perseverance character and character hope, when we get into those deep waters in life, when we get into those difficulties, and those are the times that we begin to doubt the love of God. And and uh, we ask ourselves, how do I really know that God loves me? And the answer to that question is threefold. And, there, uh, and it's all found within these first 11 verses. And the first answer to that, how do I know that God really loves me, is as we saw in verses 1 through 5 last week, we know God loves us by virtue of the fact that we've made it this far in our walk with the Lord. We have made it this far in a lifetime of tribulation producing perseverance and perseverance producing character and character producing love. And in verse 5, Paul tells us that the only reason we've made it thus far in our Christian life is because God has poured out His love continually upon us by His Holy Spirit each and every time we have entered into the difficulty of those uh, trials. It is the fact that you and I are still standing as Christians today through all of the thick and thin that we've been through is an evidence of God's love active in our life. Reminds me of a song where Elton John sang so many years ago. I don't remember the song except a single line in it, but the line is, I'm still standing. And that's the song of love for every Christian and you look at what you've been through as a Christian. Look at what you would have never gotten through on your own strength. You know, we know we wouldn't have. And yet here you are still standing. And what is it in an evidence of? Many things. But one of those things is the love of God at work in our lives. Now, we don't look like much. You get to the end of it. Uh, but but it is a witness to the love of God. The second evidence here that we see in these verses is that we know that God loves us because He's told us over and over and over again in His Word, as He does here in, in verse 8. And the Bible says something interesting about God when He gives His Word. Uh, when God, the Bible says not only that God will not lie to us, but God cannot lie. He cannot lie. And so when he tells us in his word that he loves us, he has given us his word. He is communicating the reality of his heart toward us. Jesus loves me, this I know, the, the old children's rhyme, for the Bible tells me so. God has spoken his love to us. But then third, is a third reassurance of, of his love. The third reason we know that he loves us is, that, uh, is because of the demonstration of his love at Calvary. He not only verbalizes his word to us, but he demonstrates it uh, to us. And, uh, and we know that he loves us because of that, the death of his son upon the cross for our sins at Calvary. And the greatest thing that we can ever do when we hit difficult times within our lives, 
and we want to doubt the love of God, or we want to determine the love of God on the basis of our circumstances or on the basis of, of the difficulty of the trial that, that we're in or the, the, you know, our bank balance or, or whatever it might be. But God says there's only one place you can look in all of life and, and, and have a foolproof understanding of how much I love you and, and, and never miss it. And, and be disoriented by your trials, and that is to look to the cross and to see Jesus hanging upon that cross, paying for the forgiveness of our sins when we wanted nothing to God to do with God, uh, you know, at, 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 in a portion of our life. That is the great demonstration of the love of God that will never fail us in life. You notice that the word demonstrate in, in, in verse 8, it is the w- demonstrates. It isn't demonstrated. A lot of times I'll say it is demonstrated. But it is demonstrates. It is in the present tense. And Paul puts it in the present tense because it, it, in, in doing so, he tells us that this demonstration of God's love 2,000 years ago in Jesus' death upon the cross for our sins, that that demonstration of God's love remains as powerful today. It speaks as powerfully to us today as ever it did 2,000 years ago. And life can be so hard and so confusing uh, sometimes, but the death of Jesus always speaks to us of the greatness of the love of God for us. And God knows that we need that reassurance of His love, and He wants us to be reassured of His love. I hope you never doubt the love of God, and uh, I hope nobody is doing that this morning. It's a complete waste of time, though um, I, I don't shame someone for being there but just to say in the light of the Word of God, what God has done in our lives, our history with Him, what He has spoken to us in His Word, uh, our life experience with Him, the demonstration at Calvary, all of it assures us and reassures us of His love. God wants us to be confident in His love. We have enough that works against us in life as Christians that he doesn't want us spending even a moment wondering about his love. Jesus dying on the cross for our sins at Calvary, it was and it remains the greatest demonstration of the greatness of God's love for us. And his love for us is no less today than it was on that day 2,000 years ago outside of the Damascus Gate at the hill called Calvary in Jerusalem. Hallelujah. Let's stand together now and we'll pray.